Was the knee, in your opinion, across the neck throughout the entire nine minutes and 29 seconds? That's irrelevant. The knee should never be on the neck. Reasonable minds can disagree, agreed? On this particular point, no. Hello and welcome to TNT. I'm your host, Micah McKenzie, and here I give you the spill on all things pop culture, political, and societal issues. Today, I'll be debriefing week three of the Derek Chauvin trial. Last Tuesday, the prosecution rested their case, meaning that the defense was able to start presenting their exhibits last Wednesday. Eric Nelson called several medical experts to the stand this week. However, many of those witnesses during the cross-examination were forced to agree with the arguments presented in court by the prosecution. Today, I'd like to explore whether or not Nelson's seeds of doubt that he's planting are strong enough to swing a conviction. We have a lot to cover today, so let's jump right on in with our Watch Pot moment. Watched pot never boils. Today's watched pot moment is going to be a little bit different. Seeing as the prosecution has already rested their case, I'm not going to be presenting um, arguments of both sides today for our watched pot moment because we've already talked about extensively what the prosecution has done. And so I don't really feel like we need to really beat a dead horse. But um, what I am going to do is introduce the prosecution's last two witnesses that they called in Monday and Tuesday. So the second to last witness that the prosecution called in was cardiologist Jonathan Rich. Rich maintains in his testimony that George Floyd most certainly died from positional asphyxia due to him being in the prone position and Derek Chauvin's knee being on his neck for nine minutes and 29 seconds. While on the stand, Jonathan Rich also mentions that there were two separate occasions while Floyd was in the prone position where officers could have saved Floyd's life. The first being when George Floyd was found to be unconscious and the second when officers could not find a pulse. The defense then decided to cross-examine seeing as the prosecution did not have a direct. And so Eric Nelson, argued these three points or these other factors that may have contributed to his death. Uh, Number one being drugs. Uh, As we all know, George Floyd had levels of methamphetamine and fentanyl in his system at his time of death. However, although Jonathan Rich agrees that there is no safe dose of street methamphetamines to be in someone's body, he claims that the drugs had absolutely nothing to do with his death seeing that he was essentially suffocated to death from Derek Chauvin's knee. Eric Nelson also argues that because George Floyd's arteries were narrowed by 75%, that that could have affected his blood circulation, which could have affected 
his heart or caused his heart to stop beating. Jonathan Rich disagrees with that testimony about his arteries affecting the blood circulation because as long as blood can continue to circulate throughout the body, the heart is able to continue beating and that should not be a problem. And lastly, Nelson tries to argue that George Floyd may have lived if he had just gotten in the car. Now, Jonathan Rich doesn't give the defense the pleasure in answering that question, however, but when the prosecution asks him if they believe that George Floyd would have died if he was not subjected to what Derek Chauvin put him through, he answers that he most definitely believed that George Floyd would not have died had he not had that encounter with the police. The prosecution then calls their last witness, Seth Stoughton, a former police officer, law professor, and a use of force expert. Prior to his testimony, the prosecution replayed the video of the arrest. And so Stoughton's testimony are his reactions to what he saw in the video. And so in his testimony, he makes two very important points. He notices like Dr. Rich, there were times where the police officers could have saved George Floyd's life. In particular, on the body cam video, one of the rookie officers can be heard asking Derek Chauvin, should we roll him on his side? And Chauvin replies, no, he's staying right where he is. Roll him on his side. Please explain to the jury uh, what you heard that was relevant to your analysis uh, in that exchange. So there's one officer who's suggesting or asking uh, about whether they should roll Mr. Floyd onto his side, and you hear the um, the, uh, the defendant uh, say, "No, he's he's staying put. They're going to keep him in the prone restraint," which is in complete violation of police policy, as we have said before on previous episodes that. Once a suspect is in the prone position, the Hubble technique or rolling a suspect onto their side or sitting them up is important and paramount to that subject's survival as being in the prone position for extended period of time can be lethal. The second point of the defense that Stoughton debunks is the idea that the crowd was threatening, which has been shown to be the defense's favorite argument as to why Derek Chauvin didn't change his course of action when the crowd asked him to. On the video, you can hear Officer Tao shout to the crowd, this is why you don't do drugs, kids. professor, former officer in use of force expert, Stoughton claims that if you really do believe that the crowd is a threat, you wouldn't do anything to egg them on and add fuel to the fire and taunting the crowd saying that this is why you shouldn't do drugs or else you'll end up like George Floyd while the crowd is watching this man be murdered. Obviously it's not a good idea if you believe that these people can be a threat. During the cross, Eric Nelson brings up the argument that Police officers have to be mindful of their position in regards to the crowd and where they have the suspect. And Stoughton agrees to that. However, he says that that shouldn't have played a factor because the crowd was non-threatening. They were relatively calm. And that had absolutely nothing to do with what was going on in the video.
if there is some reason to believe that the crowd is threatening in some way, yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't I don't see that the case here. Eric Nelson points out that sometimes tense situations and arrest may look awful, but may in fact be legal. And Staunton agrees to this point, but however, again, when looking at this video, that idea is not relevant, seeing as kneeling on a suspect's neck while they are in the prone position is just straight up illegal. And you're uh, familiar with the concept that sometimes situations may look awful, but they may be lawful. It can look bad. Um, I, as I said, I don't think that's the case here. And lastly, Eric Nelson asks if Staunton believes that Derek Chauvin's knee was on George Floyd's neck for the entire nine minutes and 29 seconds. And Salton claims that that's irrelevant. The amount of time that Chauvin was on George Floyd's neck is irrelevant because he shouldn't have been on his neck in the first place. Was the knee, in your opinion, across the neck throughout the entire nine minutes and 29 seconds? That's irrelevant. The knee should never be on the neck. What happens next after that response just, just kind of really ticked me off. I'll play a clip of it here. Reasonable minds can disagree, agreed? On this particular point, no. Throw it up, throw it up. Watch it all fall out. Throw it up, throw it up. That's how we ball out. Throw it up, throw it up. Watch it all fall out. Throw it up, throw it up. Now, as I said earlier, the defense started presenting their exhibits on Wednesday morning. The defense called five witnesses this week, but I'm really going to be highlighting two in this episode. So the first witness that I want to highlight is use of force expert and former police officer Barry Broad. Now, Broad testifies that Chauvin followed standard police procedure and training and that his use of force was objectively reasonable because one, the crowd was a threat, two, George Floyd resisted arrest, and three, use of force equals pain, and Floyd experienced none, in his opinion. Now, during the cross, the prosecution completely obliterates all three reasons that, all three reasons that Broad presented. And Broad eventually has to agree with the prosecution. So because the prosecution's cross was so good and it speaks for itself, I'm just going to play the clips here. This is well within the restraint period, true? Yes. In this uh, in moment, uh, was this crowd a uh, threatening crowd? No. Attempting to breathe while restrained is uh, being slightly non-compliant? No. No. Uh, just a fair warning, there is going to be a small clip of the George Floyd arrest video played here. So if you are sensitive to that, you may want to skip to the next 15 seconds. If someone is not resisting and they're compliant, the use of something, uh, uh, control as you put it, that could produce pain, is just not justified, is it? No. Defense then calls in their second witness, Dr. David Fowler, the former chief medical examiner for the state of Maryland. Now, Dr. Fowler is the former chief medical examiner for the state of Maryland. And this is important because this means that he no longer serves as a chief medical examiner. And he no longer serves in this position because he was recently found to be purposely changing the manner of death 
in another police-involved shooting and killing of a Black man, Anton Black. So really anything that revolves the manner of death should be taken with a grain of salt. Fowler claims that uh, George Floyd's manner of death was not a homicide and that the other medical factors were more likely to have killed George Floyd and not Derek Chauvin's knee on his neck for nine minutes and 29 seconds. Fowler claims that George Floyd died from sudden cardiac arrhythmia, meaning that both his heart and lungs stopped working at the same time. And he believes that that sudden cardiac arrhythmia was caused due to his pre-existing heart diseases that he had. Fowler then tries to debunk the prosecution's expert witnesses by saying that the prone position is safe. The use of the knee on the neck couldn't have caused positional asphyxia as there were no bruises and that other factors such as car exhaust or carbon monoxide poisoning could have caused death. He then even goes on to say that other causes of death may have been carbon monoxide poisoning from the car exhaust, seeing that he was behind the car during the majority of the video that we see. And he also speaks about the hyperpharynx and the lack of damage that he found. The prosecution then decides to cross, and in their cross-examination, they first verify his level of expertise, seeing that a lot of his claims that he made in his testimony had absolutely nothing to do with his actual responsibilities as a medical examiner. And so I'll insert that clip here of them verifying his level of expertise. Let's talk for just a moment about your uh, areas of expertise. We, we know that you are a forensic pathologist, but you're not a toxicologist or you don't have um, a degree in toxicology. That is correct. I'm not a toxicologist. The prosecution then asks Fowler if applying and maintaining pressure on the neck of a person in the prone position until that person is unresponsive causes irreversible brain damage because the brain was starved of oxygen. And Fowler agrees, furthering the point that George Floyd most likely died from positional asphyxia. Now, this was honestly my favorite part uh, of the cross-examination. If you haven't been watching, I, I highly suggest that you do because Prosecutor Blackwell is just, he's hes winning the game here. Uh, so Prosecutor Blackwell then pulls out a medical textbook and proves that with the data presented in the medical textbook, bruises are not common in most asphyxiation cases and Dr. Fowler is forced to agree. For identification purposes, uh, Your Honor, it's Exhibit A14 for the record. Um, am I reading here correctly that, however, the majority of cases are subtle, in fact, often with no traumatic manifestations at all? I read that accurately. Yes, you did. Now, I know that that was a lot, but let's take a moment to sip on this. After the prosecution finished their cross-examination, they 
noticed that Fowler presented this idea that carbon monoxide poisoning could have had a hand in George Floyd's death. And now the prosecution remembered that in Dr. Baker's report, they had test results uh, that had his carbon monoxide levels at the time of death. And the prosecution wanted to present this in rebuttal evidence. However, due to Eric Nelson objecting to that evidence being brought into court, seeing that the prosecution had the evidence and did not make the defense aware that they wanted to use it and that it was past the date for entering exhibits, Judge Cahill decided to not allow that test result to be presented to the jury. However, they did allow Dr. Tobin to come back and give his opinion on whether or not carbon monoxide poisoning could have been a factor and the damage that is done to the hyperpharynx when pressure is added onto it. So when Tobin is called to the stand during the prosecution's rebuttal evidence, Tobin testifies that the likelihood of George Floyd dying from carbon monoxide poisoning is significantly low, almost impossible, considering that in his oxygen saturation test, which is essentially a blood test to see what are the oxygen levels in a person's body at the time of death, George Floyd's oxygen level was at 98%, meaning that there was only a 2% level of carbon monoxide found in his body at the time of death, which is an average finding in any living person and an average finding that you find once a person is deceased. When questioned about how Dr. Tobin came to the conclusion that Derek Chauvin's knee on George Floyd's neck caused Floyd's hyperpharynx to narrow, which eventually led to lacks of oxygen and death by positional asphyxia, he claims common sense. And so I'll just insert a clip of it here because I think that his answer was just absolutely genius. Common sense that you would know that that's going to happen. I mean, you can do it on yourself if you want. Now, if you don't believe Tobin, um, I'm sure you can just sit in the comfort of your home and see what it feels like when you try and take your hand and apply pressure onto your neck. Like even just the slightest pressure on my neck right now makes it a little bit harder to breathe. So. To be completely honest, I think that moral of the story here is that when you have the burden of reasonable doubt on you, meaning you are the defense, your witnesses also need to be prepped beyond a reasonable doubt. Because, I mean, look, I know that these episodes may be seeming to be more uh, in favor of the prosecution, but you can't deny that the prosecution has a very strong and solid case. And the fact that the witnesses for the defense, many of them were forced to either take back what they said during their testimony or agree with arguments presented by the prosecution in the cross just shows how ill-managed that the defense team is. I think that Eric Nelson is not really doing a good job as a defense lawyer in prepping these witnesses. I'm glad that you hung in there with me, but I hope that you'll stay for the last drops. So after the first week of the defense presenting their exhibits, I'm left with several questions. I want to know what kind of prep, if any, 
did Nelson do for these witnesses? I'm sure he prepped them with questions that he would ask them while they were on the stand. However, I want to know what type of prep did he do for the cross-examination? Because the cross-examinations for all five witnesses was just rough to watch. Did he ever ask his witnesses, should a prosecutor from the state mention this point? What is your answer to this? Because that's essentially what the prosecution did. They found holes in the defense's argument and presented them with evidence that suggested otherwise, or just presented evidence that proved that they either didn't know what they were talking about or tried to string evidence together to prove one thing when it really was proving something else. I just want to know, what did Eric Nelson do to prep the witnesses for the cross-examination? Because it really just looked like people were flying by the seat of their pants during the cross. And because of how horribly the witnesses presented themselves during the cross-examination, I just wonder that the small seeds of doubt that Eric Nelson planted throughout the prosecution's uh, case and while he was presenting his case this week, is that going to be enough to really overturn a jury? Now, granted, for a guilty verdict, we need a unanimous vote, meaning all 12 jurors have to agree that he's guilty. But is the evidence that he presented enough to turn one person to not guilty? Because if you have your defense witnesses agreeing with the prosecution, either the prosecution is right or your witnesses were just not prepared or they're committing perjury. It's got to be one of the three. And lastly, um, I'm sure that we've all heard about the several police killings and cases of police brutality that have happened, you know, Dante Wright, Adam Toledo, and Legend Smalls, to name a few. Um, there's been a question of whether or not, after closing arguments on Monday, whether or not the jury will be sequestered for the duration of them trying to come to a verdict. And to be honest, I think that the jury probably should be sequestered. However, I think that, you know, the damage has kind of already been done. Who knows what, the, what these jurors could have done the past week after court ended each day. I don't think that they haven't been in sequesterment so far. So who's to say that they didn't go home and turn on the TV or they didn't hear something in passing from a friend or whatever. But, you know, I, I definitely think that Judge Cahill should consider sequestering the jury. However, I do think that some it may not even be worth it because who knows what could have happened this past week seeing as they haven't been sequestered for the duration of the trial. All that being said, closing arguments are most likely to come Monday as the defense is pretty much close to resting their case. A lot of people are saying that closing arguments will probably be delivered Monday afternoon towards the end of day at court. And honestly, I, I can't really predict what the jury is going to do. As I've said before, it takes one person to overturn a guilty verdict. And we just have to hope that that one person doesn't exist in this case. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, please remember to give us a like, share, and subscribe. If you haven't already, please feel free to follow me on Instagram at Micah Hinton or at Micah underscore McKenzie. So that way you can always stay updated on the latest tea. 
Feel free to also comment or DM me your suggestions for topics you want me to cover here at TNT. Be sure to also follow TNT on Spotify so that way you are always notified whenever I post a new episode. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope that you stay tuned for our next episode.